The correct term is actually a wingspansion. So. Oh, a wingspansion. Excuse <laughs> me, I didn't realize. <laughs> Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Cardboard Herald, my chance to talk with creative gamers and game creators. And joining me back on the show is tapestry designer, tapestry publisher, Jamie Stegmeyer of Stonemeyer Games. Welcome back to the show, Jamie. Thank you. Yeah, it's been about a year. So thank you for inviting me back. Yeah, the annual conversation, I guess. We can just <laughs> set, set a schedule based off of this. Man, yeah. this, this game is, it's all the talk of the town, which I guess is now the expectation when it comes to new Stonemeyer games. Yeah, that's, that's one of the perks when you have a company that only releases a few games a year. They, I think they get a little bit more attention than they otherwise would. Yeah, well, I, I think there's a few more things to it than that, just other than the fact that you're only releasing a couple games a year. But that's actually an interesting thing, something that I wanted to talk to you about before we dive into Tapestry proper, is that Stonemaier Games has really come a long way since you were first releasing Viticulture, what, back in 2012-ish, around there? That was the Kickstarter, yeah, it came out in 2013, yeah. Okay, so you had the Kickstarter in 2012, you release it in 2013, now here in 2019, one of the, the games that you've published has won the Kinnerspiel this year, the congratulations on that, and especially congratulations to Elizabeth Hargrave on the design of Wingspan, but... Where do you see Stonemeyer Games in the next, like, 10 years from now? Like, do you actually have a vision of what you'd like to achieve? Do you want to stay as this really small, personal company where you're making only a couple games a year? Or do you actually have dreams of becoming the, the Asmodee-ish or Hasbro-ish type of company where maybe you're buying other design studios? Is there any aspiration to that sort of thing for you? Actually, your, your first option was spot on. I, I, our hope is, and my hope is for us to continue to stay small and nimble and personal and personable. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, so we basically, we've, we've hit uh, the, the trajectory that, that, uh, that we kind of wanted to hit, and we're gonna just going to keep on doing that without, well, we'll continue to like reprint older games and whatnot. So we'll see, hopefully see growth in some ways, but uh I think our schedule over the next few years will look very similar to what it has the last few years. And do you look for things that would fill up the Stonemeyer library, you know, develop, oh, we don't have a civilization game, so let's get a civilization game in here? Or is it more whatever currently you and Alan are passionate about? There's a little bit of a mix of the two. As a, as a designer of some of our games, I try to pursue both passion projects and things that I haven't explored before and that aren't already in our portfolio. Um, and that often rubs off into the types of games that are submitted to us and that we're interested in something that's that we haven't published before and that maybe another company hasn't published something quite like it either. So yeah, I would say uniqueness is the key there, but it's not necessarily, we don't like have a checklist of types of games that we want to publish someday. Um, just I, I have random design ideas, but nothing in, that connects directly back to Stonemaier. Well, I, I think that as far as like key games to round out the portfolio, but also get people excited about, man, I mean, Tapestry, this thing looks incredible, Jamie. You must be really proud and excited. And is there any bit of nervousness going on as you're getting ready for a release? Or are you 100% confident on this one? I'm, I'm always a little nervous it, it is nice um for tapestry to see the reception behind it there's certainly controversy there's things that people aren't interested in we can talk about that if you'd like but uh 
it, there is a lot of enthusiasm that I'm seeing online. And so it's in, I, I'm confident that our pre-order will go well and that, that there will still be plenty of copies for retailers and distributors. So I'm all, happy about all that. But I'm always nervous about a new product and especially one that I've designed because it's very personal. I spend a, a big chunk of my life designing these games. So uh, I like the first time that I brought it to the table at my game group. Everyone was so excited to play. And I was just a nervous, stressed out wreck <laughs> uh, while we were playing because I, I just wanted it to go well right off the bat. And it did, but it d- didn't stop me from being nervous and stressed the whole time. Well, we can talk about the controversy. We'll get to the controversy. But, okay. but in the meantime, let's talk about the origins of this thing. So yeah. what I find really interesting is on the past, on the podcast, we've talked about how one of the sources of inspiration, or in fact, the source of inspiration for Scythe was seeing Jacob's artwork on Kotaku. And you were like, oh man, what's that? I got to get in contact with that guy. And then with yeah. the sculptor of this game, the, the miniatures and tapestry, you mm-hmm. ended up stumbling upon their website and then you were like man this is kind of cool i've been wanting to do a civilization game and this is the the point in which i'm really going to dive into that now what i want to know is did the the sculptures actually inform the mechanical design of the game or were some of the actual mechanical concepts for tapestry lying dormant for a while there weren't a lot of mechanisms in place. In fact, hardly any mechanisms. Uh, just the idea of a Civ game that didn't follow real-world history or people or locations, um, that that was the, the general idea that I've had that i had for quite some time, but I didn't have any mechanisms to apply to it. So once I saw those sculpts for the first time, and they weren't sculpts of buildings that ended up in tapestry. Ram is a, he typically does commission work for games where someone comes to him and says, hey, I want the most beautiful copy of Robinson Crusoe in the world. And he'll... He'll deck it out with his uh, little hand-sculpted uh, clay figurines and, and buildings and whatnot. But I saw them, and uh, as you said, it just something just clicked because I had this one idea over here, and suddenly I saw these buildings, and I was like, "Oh, that's the exact aesthetic I want for this game," and that's the thing that I think will make the, these civilizations come to life in a colorful, vibrant way that I haven't seen before in a civilization game. So those, when those two things mesh together, it Right away, I was like, "This is this is it. I, I I need to figure out a mechanism to how to use these buildings. I don't know how yet, but I I know they belong in this game, and I want to find a way to make them work." What's fascinating about that is that it, it's entirely thematic inspiration, because the the sculpts themselves don't necessarily give you any sort of innovative mechanism that wouldn't otherwise be possible, and right. I I think that's what some of the the initial controversy and concern that people have over the game is is wow you're packing 18 of these pre-painted miniatures in here and how much of the cost of the game can be attributed to these things which might as well be cosmetic additions like to you how important to the the overall tone and experience of playing this game are the 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 physical manifestations of these buildings I think that's really the perfect way to ask that question. You mentioned the experience, and that's when I design a game. Also, as the, since I'm the designer and the publisher for all of my games, I'm designing a very specific experience that I want people to have at the table. Um, you know, when we play games, we're we're not just it's, it's not just a purely mechanical thing. We're, we're experiencing it often with other people. So there's the social aspect, and there's also the uh, tactile aesthetic aspect of the game and, and how it etches visuals and, and moments in your memory because of the, the experiences you had at the table. So I'm 
always thinking about that experience. I don't always get it right. I don't think anyone does, but that was the, I, I just thought that those, and I still think that the, those, uh, pre-painted miniatures and the, every component in tapestry is, is really designed towards creating a special experience, uh, sim like experience at the table. Was there ever a moment where you thought, well, what if we went with more traditional wooden abstract Euro-ish type of buildings and then these can be like the scythe realistic resources, which are an upgrade that people could purchase separately? I briefly, I, I, I don't know if I looked at wood specifically. I, I the, the three things I considered were tiles, unpainted miniatures and pre-painted miniatures. Um, and many of the game, many of the miniatures in the game are unpainted. It's just the 18 landmarks that are pre-painted. Uh, but yeah, I consider the price, the cost and the prices of, uh, all those different options, but, uh, I just kept coming back to the pre-painted miniatures. Basically the, the game could have cost a lot less or had a low, much lower price if they were tiles. I, I can't deny that. I, I think that's completely true, but the, I, I basically, I had a price point I wanted to hit, um, with anything in the game and I've, even though the game should cost a little bit more than it does, I've actually artificially decreased the price a little bit, and it brings it really close to what the price would have been if they were unpainted. And so at that point, I, I just figured, you know, it's not that much more comparison between those two. I might as well go with what I think is the more beautiful, memorable um, version of them. Well, as a player and someone who reviews games, I think a lot more about intended experience these days mm. and and what the the person who's creating these things wants to convey when someone sits down at the table. It's actually something that has kind of frustrated me more when people put in too many variants into their game. Like here's right off the get-go, you have this way of playing or you have this way of playing and it's integrated into the rule book as if you're supposed to make these decision points during setup or or maybe it's a proposed alternative shortly after. And I, I see the advantage of some of those things to accommodate some players. But I yeah. think there's really something to be said about like executing on a core vision. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, I, I have sympathy for for people who may not be able to afford uh, a game that uh, has a, a level of production that uh, is higher than what they're necessarily expecting or, or want out of a game. Uh, and I also understand that there there's all kinds of financial costs in the development and production of the game. But as far as... I'm concerned, man, this thing, it looks like something that I want to play. And it looks like something that I want to invest in. It, it helps me engage in a way that I don't know that just tiles would have allowed me to do. So when I saw those miniatures, I was like, hell yeah, these look awesome, dude. I can't wait to check this out. And I think the same thing could be said about Wingspan. I mean... Mm. That game is so mechanically solid. I think it's a wonderful game, and I think it, it deserves the accolades that it's received. And I also don't think that it would necessarily be quite the same game if it didn't have that lavish artwork for all the different birds, or even the tower, or the wonderful wooden dice that you have. I mean, the, those wooden yeah. dice, if they had stickers on them instead of the, the actual printing directly on them something about that helps the whole product feel cohesive and and like a, an executed vision so i think tapestry as far as i'm concerned looks hella cool <laughs> thank you yeah it is it, 
there are a lot of little touches I think that go into games, whether they're Stonemaier games or by any company. And it's neat that you notice those little things. There's a lot of those little things that I think you'll notice in Tapestry when you when you have your copy. And also, actually, one thing that you said about variants that, I, I, that ties back to your original question too is some people have asked like, why did why didn't we offer like a deluxe version and non deluxe version? And I, I certainly could have done that, but I again I was designing for a certain experience, and I think sometimes even though Kickstarter has kind of put people in that mindset that there can be multiple versions of a game, I kind of just wanted to design what I thought was the best one and put it out there and avoid any confusion from someone who maybe buys it from the game store and thinks, okay, I, I, I don't know what's in this one. Like, what's the difference between this one and that other one that my friend has or that I saw in a review video, you know? So all those things factored into me just wanting to pick one version of the game and make that version and have it be clear and, and for everybody. Well, you can make a budget title down the road called like Tapestry Pocket or Travel Tapestry or something, you know, it'll be on a little board and you can just have pegs and little tiles or something, you know, you can make it available if it's a huge hit, uh, which, right. you know, again, it's a Stonemeyer game. So I'm guessing that people are going to be pretty into it. But let's talk about design and development to start yeah. off with. You know, you've talked about endlessly. You've talked about this game and your designer diary, which I recommend that people who are interested in tapestry in this interview that you go check out some of that stuff on Stonemaier's website. But to you, what is the the like killer feature of this game? The the most innovative aspect of the mechanical design. I really, really like how the advancement tracks work. Um, and so just a, a brief overview for people who haven't seen about the game. Basically, one of the main things you'll do in the game, um, you'll actually just do two things. You'll, you'll take income turns a few times over the course of the game as you advance your civilization. Um, and when you're not taking income turns, you are taking advanced turns where you are paying a cost. You're choosing one of four tracks, either science, military, technology, or exploration. And you are advancing one space on that track and then gaining the resulting benefit. And the thing that I really like about this is that it has built-in progression. So like the actions that you're taking earlier or those benefits that you're gaining early on a track are very different and much less powerful than the actions later on in the track. So every time you're moving forward on a track, you're, the benefit you immediately gain is more powerful, more interesting. It can, it can vary based on um, the track really. Uh, but it's also, it allowed me to take 48 different actions, essentially, because the tracks are each 12 segments long, there are four of them. So 48 different benefits or actions. And distill it down to four choices, basically, because you're only choosing between four things on your turn, on an advanced turn. Which track? Which one of the four tracks? Um, and so that... That I really like as a gamer who like that my style of learning and playing a game is to kind of just jump in and see what happens. And I love that Tapestry allows you to do that because you're faced with so, so few decisions, but each one is interesting and has an impact on your strategy as a whole, depending on when you take it, if you advance on that track at all, um, and, and, and how far at the end of the game you advance on some tracks and others not at all. You might end the game with military that hasn't advanced the past the point of basic walls, but you are exploring outer space. So it doesn't actually, not everything really makes sense in Tapestry. It leads to these hopefully memorable moments and stories. But I, I, that, I've, I've said a lot here, but that's, that's what I, I love how those tracks work. And were those tracks essential elements of the game from the get-go, or did those come later on in the design process? Early on in the design process, I had uh, what looked like maybe a more traditional tech tree 
that it was still divided up into tracks. It had eight tracks instead of just four. And um, each track kind of branched and then converged upon itself, then branched again, uh, like a DNA helix. But uh, but it, it was information overload. It was so much, so many <laughs> from the start. Like it was, it, you could. There's some photos on the design diary. It just it looks kind of cool in hindsight, but actually playing it, sitting on the plate, it was extremely daunting and difficult. So I, I tried to move away from that and, and realize that I didn't need all those split paths and that I didn't need eight tracks. I really just needed the four core ones. I know you're a huge advocate of blind playtesting. And what was one of the most surprising things to come out of blind playtesting for this game? Yeah, um, players kept asking for more interaction. Um, our playtesters did. How do I and squash so, my opponent? Come on, my wife deserves to have her civilization <laughs> beaten into the ground. <laughs> and that was that's actually the tough thing about it, because my designs are not, um, they don't have a lot of negative player interaction. At, at best, I try to have some good positive player interaction and then some neutral player interaction. But I don't, even inside the game where you're walking around with giant mechs on the board and you are attacking, directly attacking other players, you're not really destroying the things that they built up. Um, and so I, I carried that design philosophy over into Tapestry. And I think I went maybe I pulled back a little bit too much early on. Um, and then through the playtest feedback, I found more and more ways to add interaction and really give you a reason to pay attention to the other players, whether it's a race to a certain achievement or landmark or something, some sort of interaction that's happening on the map. I did a design diary post about that and ended up listing like the 10 different ways that there are reasons to pay attention to other players in Tapestry. Um, so hopefully I didn't actually go overboard with that because I did get so much feedback about it that I hope hopefully I didn't overcompensate. But uh, but it was something I listened to that I heard a lot. Do you ever feel like designer Jamie is in conflict with publisher Jamie? Like, you know, aspects of creating a game where you know that personally if you did x y or z it would make it a better game for you what you mm -hmm. want to to realize on but it may make it a little bit less accessible or unfeasible to end up producing you know like do you ever have to make those decisions where you're like man the responsible thing to do is to to go with a slightly different game yeah i would say that the conflict is between gamer jamie and designer slash producer Jamie and publisher Jamie, uh, because <laughs> while I like a, a lot of different games, um, my taste in games certainly do impact those things as, as that, that go into my designs. Um, but in the end, usually I think I end up with a game that I want to play more than I did, much more than I did before the blind playtesting feedback came in. So, and 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 that I think would make the best game for the the most people. So um, I think the two end up uh, meeting each other in the end for, mo for the most part. Well, your tastes in games do affect how the, the games look, and that's abundantly clear. I mean, you, you make it very obvious, and you also talk about the games that you're most interested in. You put out these lists <laughs> of your favorite games at the moment, and that has changed dramatically over the years. Do you ever reflect on the changes in yourself? Like, if you look back to the viticulture days, your design philosophy, the things that were important to you then, how do you feel like you've evolved as a game designer since now here in 2019? I, I hope that I've evolved quite a bit. Um, 
I, looking back, I, I can see specific areas where I thought I knew something that I wanted or liked, and then I moved away from that. Uh, one, I'll give you two quick specific examples. One is that my earliest philosophy was that I didn't think that turn order should happen clockwise. And that's why in Viticulture, that's one of the reasons why Viticulture has a wake-up track. Uh, you jump around in turn order. Because I thought that was more interesting. And in Viticulture, it does make for an interesting decision. When do you, when do you, you know, turn order every season it has, a, has a pretty big impact on the game. But as I'm sure you've experienced when you play games, you might have those moments where you're like, oh, whose turn is it? Why are we just sitting here? <laughs> yep. Who are we waiting on? We don't even know right now. Um, whereas just clockwise play, it's, it, it is simpler, but it it's much easier to, to keep that flow of play going and moving around the table. The other example is with Euphoria. So I designed Viticulture, and then um, I designed Euphoria. And I, after Viticulture, I, I thought that I needed more interconnected systems in my games. I needed one thing to impact these other two things, and then those two things have to impact these other two things. So I went into Euphoria with that in mind. But what I discovered is that that makes Euphoria a lot harder to teach because – to explain one thing, you have to explain two other things and explain these two other things. And so that was when I realized that uh, interconnected systems are great, but um, not necessarily if they disrupt your ability to teach and learn a game. What did you learn from Charterstone? Because I, I would say that even though there are tons of people who absolutely love Charterstone, I, I, I would say it's probably the most divisive of the Stonemeyer <laughs> titles. And so... Yeah. I, I remember talking to you in anticipation of the game, what you were really excited about, what you really wanted to execute on, the, the goals, uh, and the hopes that it would be this sustainable game that's played after you go through the entire campaign and every copy is unique. Like, in retrospect now, what have you learned about game design and would you have done anything different? Do you think you might dip into legacy mechanics again in the future well aside from expansions that we've already covered in other podcasts i, I would say the big two things that i learned um one like with all my games i am really thinking about that teaching learning experience and that was what i thought about a ton with charterstone we talked about it the the, the way the rule book works it starts out pretty much empty and even that changed during the design process. Originally, there was a completely empty rule book. In the final version, there is a partially filled in rule book and you put stickers in it. What I wish I had done and what I will do if we, re if we reprint it, um, it's not a significant change, but I wish I had just included like an FAQ in the box. Uh, we have a great FAQ now that you can print out on our website. This is exactly the same thing that I would put in the game. So it's, it's essentially there. But... Um, but I think it. I think it just helps. Like I, I, I I've heard. You know, it's it, you can only fit so many rules on a little sticker that's the size of a card. Um, and I, I wish I had that FAQ to, in the box to complement it. I think that would have avoided a lot of the issues that people ran into uh, in the early plays of, of Charterstone before we had that FAQ. I think. I mean, I'm no designer, so like, what am I saying from the the sidelines here? But. One thing that I think would have changed a lot of people's play experience with that is if they had an FAQ that not only addressed some of the questions about how to operate the game, but also maybe how to affect the game in the ways that players might need to. Like, mm -hmm. it, it's such a new experience for many people, and having that many 
changing elements or, 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 you know, things that can be different from one player experience to another, having yeah. something that can guide players, oh, if one person is really, you know, just uh, taking the runaway leader role, then here's what other players can do in order to mitigate that or someone exploiting the same things over and over again. Here are ways that uh, players can interact with that that will regulate the game a little bit more that aren't falsely regulating the game by saying, we're going to make it against the rules for this game to do this, um, but actually empower people to to interact with the game as you originally intended because there's not a lot of hand-holding and, and explanation in how people should even be playing the game. You have the rules, which explain how the game is played, but that doesn't necessarily tell you why you should be doing one thing or another. You know what I mean? I, I love that suggestion, and I think it works particularly well, well because it's a competitive legacy game. So if it's cooperative, you can work around a lot of those things. You can decide as a group to, to do something. But when it's competitive, you have that reasonable desire for people to want to win a game or win the campaign. And those things you mentioned, I think, uh, little ways to guide players through those tougher moments when they can feel like they're falling behind or when, like you said, a player is abused, maybe feeling like they're abusing a loop. Um, I think that's a, a great thought, Jack. Thank you. We're so far away from Tapestry at this point, so <laughs> we, we can get back to this game. You have definitely shown a, a whole lot about this game and the rollout. This is probably the, the tightest uh, announcement and advertising schedule that I've seen coming out of you and maybe anyone for a board game up until this point. Like, how long have you been planning all of the individual days of um, designer diaries and let's plays and Rado runs through <laughs> what kind of schedule were you working on as you developed your schedule? I'm, I'm glad from the outside, it looks so, so, uh, I don't know I want to say polished or I'll say scheduled because it really isn't all that scheduled. The, the dates that I knew were the announcement day, the soft announcement on August 7th, which I knew was going to be after Gen Con. I wanted it to be after Gen Con, not before, and get lost in the mix of so many other games. Um, I knew that uh, reviewers would be allowed to show elements of the game as of August 22nd. So I knew that I needed to show everything and have the rules revealed by then. And then uh, everybody, the people who wanted to share other content could take it from there. And I had the, uh, the pre-order date of September 4th. Even that was a little flexible, though, because Tapestry shipped out of China slightly later than I hoped it would. And so there was a time where that date may have needed to change a little bit. Um, but it didn't. Um, we're sticking with it. So really, I only had those key dates. And then I had a long list of stuff, topics that I wanted to discuss in the design diary, topics that I've been accumulating over the entire design process. So I kind of think about that stuff well in advance now. But I didn't know which day would cover which topic. I kind of just thought about it the night before and said, what am I excited to write about today? And I, I wrote about that that thing. That totally does not come across. It seems <laughs> like this is the most put together thing ever. In fact, 
I was yeah. thinking about this as you were announcing the game and talking about it. And one of the primary selling features for the game was that it's only four pages of rule book. Can you believe uh-huh. that? Only four pages. It was in the announcement trailer. I think it has maybe like some little splash logo somewhere on the website. I've seen it cited many times over. And I was like, is Jamie trying to make Stonemaier games the apple of board games? <laughs> like, it, it seems like you're, you're really trying to go for this ultra gestalt experience, you know, something that is so streamlined and tight and uniform and, and leads to the ultimate level of accessibility that people just want this highly polished, very accessible, high-end experience. And... Is that actually something that you've thought about? Like, are, do you take cues on how to market and hold your company from other industries than tabletop games? Yeah, yeah, quite a bit. Yeah, I, uh, the video, the well, Apple's a good example, but also the I've been more and more influenced by video games. Um, not that I, I don't really play many video games, but I observe them, watch a lot of videos about them, read a lot about them. Um, and it just, it, it amazes me how well video games let people just start playing and they teach as you go. Like the, you, no one reads a manual for a video game anymore. But in tabletop, the tabletop game space, that's still very much a thing. And so I did learn from, again, from Charterstone that there there are limits to that. Right, but, right. Uh, with Tapestry, yeah, I, I went into it with that idea. I wanted, I wanted to have a very streamlined rule set and have the complexity emerge from other elements of the game, not the rules themselves. Um, but at the same time, I did try to, I, I told myself if I needed a longer rule book to, to show visuals and examples and things like that, I would, I would definitely do that. Have you seen the final rule book? Have you, I have seen it. It's, it is quite amazing what you've put together in such a small package there. Thanks. Yeah. I, I think I, 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 I'm sure there will be questions that arise. Uh, I completely get that, but I, I think we, I met the goal of, uh, having it be a very visual rulebook. Even the other rulebooks I've seen in games that I kind of modeled it after a little bit, like uh, Concordia was one, has a very short rulebook. Uh, Concordia uses very small text. It's pretty text-heavy, whereas the Tapestry rulebook is very uh, very colorful, full of examples and normal-sized text. So hopefully it'll be a good experience for people to learn the game and they can get it to the table within a day or so of receiving it in September. I think that the type of experience that you're talking about with video games where people are learning as they play could probably be conveyed a lot better in a cooperative game. Do you have any yeah. plans for any cooperative games in the future? We, we, we may have, I, I can't remember if we talked about Zelda the breath. We did talk about Zelda breath of the wild. Um, I think the last time we chatted, but that is, uh, that's the inspiration for a cooperative game that I'm working on. And you're right. The cooperative format allows for that, uh, learn as you play experience. And the, the game that I'm working on, um, Definitely does that. I haven't actually written the rulebook for it yet. That's I'm saving that for a little bit later. But I I am curious myself how that rulebook will turn out because it is really the type of thing where I want people to just sit down, open the game, and start playing. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll see how that turns out. What about other projects that Stonemaier has going on? Obviously, you have another project that's a cooperative game, and Zelda Breath mm-hmm. of the Wild is a heavy influence on that. But you know, yeah. what other things do you have right around the corner? I know Elizabeth Hargrave has talked about wingspan expansions. Do you have anything that you can share here about that? The correct term is actually a wingspansion. So. Oh, a wingspansion. Excuse <laughs> me. I didn't realize. Um, 
Yeah, we do have a, the, the, the next announcement we have will be for the Wingspan expansion. Um, so that's, that's coming up fairly soon after Tapestry. And then after that, we have another expansion. I think it's actually on our schedules. I, I, I can say that it's the, the My Little Scythe expansion will be next. And then we have, I, I basically have our, 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 our schedule mapped out roughly for the next two years. So I know the, the games that will release over the next two years, and hopefully there will be one Wingspan expansion a year as well, and hopefully a Tapestry expansion somewhere in there, maybe next year, maybe the following year. Um, but the new, I haven't really talked about the, the, the new games yet. That's, that'll remain under wraps for a little while longer while we're still figuring out when exactly they'll be released. When you are developing or designing a game at this point and mm -hmm. you're accounting for what can be released down the road as far as expansions, like, do you ever feel a, a conflict within yourself? Like, oh man, you know, is this something that is going to feel like it was missing from the base game if I don't include it now? Like, how do you draw the line on what constitutes expansion content versus base game content? I try really hard not to ever cut something for the sake of an, of, an of an expansion. So if I cut something, I want it to be because it never belongs in the game. It's making the game less fun, less intuitive, less balanced. Not because I'm saving it for later. Um, there are plenty of places in Tapestry where I could have cut some tech cards, some Tapestry cards. There are 16 civilizations. I could have easily cut that down to 10 if I'd wanted to. But I wanted to throw everything in there that I could. All the all the good ideas, everything that play tested well, I wanted to put it in there. So it typically is not a conflict for me to, to – in fact, I don't think I've ever really encountered that. I can't think of a game where I've thought, you know, this really belongs in the game, but I'm going to save it for an expansion. But sometimes just, you do tip your hat that something's coming down the road and it kind of feels like, you know, maybe this – could have been included in the base game. I'm not saying that Scythe necessarily yeah. should have had invaders from afar. Again, there are probably a dozen production concerns into why that wasn't there, or maybe it wasn't fully developed, but you do have definitely a lot of gamers who would look at two vacant spots on the board that are clearly meant yeah. for expansion content who will look at that and go like, man, what's going on here? Like, if you yeah. knew it was going to be in there, why not just throw it into the game right away? Well, cost and price, and for Scythe, I hadn't designed those expansions at all yet. Basically, all Jacob, Jakob and I had were two pieces of concept art that inspired something that we were going to put in the game someday. Um, in hindsight, uh, I think I probably would have left them off the board. I think there is something a little cool about it that like you, that it adds a little bit of mystery like oh what's what I'm, what could be here what's coming especially before the invaders from afar was released but I, I totally see what you're saying how it uh, at the time when people got their copy aside they may have thought you know what why did Jamie leave this out um, they would have had to pay a lot more for side that they wanted that <laughs> and it would have been a much less marketable um, retail product but. Yes, and it's still printed on the board, too, so I haven't ever taken that back. I think it's too late to take back at this point. But in hindsight, I probably would have. Yeah, and if people are complaining about the, the price of Tapestry right now, then who knows what they would say if there was, you know, X, Y, or Z extra miniatures and civilizations right. in there or something, and then it's $150. You're blowing yeah. the minds of everyone <laughs> out there, Jamie. 
Well, one thing that I wanted to talk to you about before I let you go is that you're, you're an industry leader. There, there are tons of people who look up to you who are uh, always reading your blog and, and looking for insight in how to uh, become a game publisher, how to be a better designer. Uh, and you definitely, you know, you deliver. You, you give that information out there. Uh mm -hmm. And one thing that I, I actually wanted to know for, for my own understanding, because I'm not immersed into the the inside baseball world of board games, is what is Stonemeyer Games doing to prepare for an upcoming tariff war? Yeah, uh, there, there is the quite possible prospect that, that Trump, I mean, Trump has announced that he will be putting a 10% tariff on many, many things, including um, board games, tabletop games, uh, that will, I think, come into play in December. If it actually happens. So, I, I mean, there was he, he made a similar announcement a few months ago, and it didn't happen. And so I, I'm, not, I'm not acting on it personally as a publisher. But if it does happen, um, my plan is to make sure that it doesn't impact consumers and that it doesn't impact my company's sustainability. So there are two things that I'm doing, and I would recommend to anyone listening to this who really wants to go into depth in depth into this. I would recommend reading um, a blog post on Pandasaurus Games website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was yeah. a really good read. Yep. Yeah, um, Nathan did a, a great job of detailing a lot of facts. He put in a little bit of opinions, a few of which I didn't necessarily agree with, but a, a lot of great facts in there that I think are worth reading. But the two things that we'll we'll be doing most likely if it, if it happens. Um, well, one we're already doing. One, we, we ship a lot of games directly from China, not to the U.S. So we ship to distributors directly in Canada and Australia and, and Europe. And so I, I would say that's about 40% of the games that we make. We have the luxury of shipping a lot of games. I know there are a lot of smaller companies. I think bigger companies probably do the same thing that we do. But uh, it is a bit of a luxury for us to be able to do that. But it helps us now avoid the US. We don't have to send a game through the US, get charged that tariff, and then have to go right out the door over to the UK or France. That's that's one thing. The other thing is um, I, I, I don't want to raise the, the price of any of our games. Um, so I think what we're going to have to do is work with uh, distributors and retailers to find a happy medium in terms of the various discounts that everyone gets along the way so that all of us might be making a little bit less money, but in the end, the customer isn't charged anything more, and none of us along the way go out of business. So my plan is, is to do that, especially with distributors who I work directly with, to find a maybe a, a slightly different discount that they get that will not damage them and also maintain sustainability for us. It's a great plan. It's a lot of questions up in the air, so we'll see what actually shakes out. I, I think that could have significant ramifications, but then again, it's really hard to tell what things are actually going to happen with this administration. I mean, not not to get political or anything, but you know, it, it's hard to tell. The last thing that I wanted to leave with is, what are you doing for fun these days, Jamie? Because you seem to be the hardest working man in board games. So like, what are you doing to relax and just get your mind off of this? At one point you were telling me about how you were reading tons of novels. You recommended the Expanse books, which are oh, yeah. awesome. They're fantastic. Yeah. I, I totally dove in uh, even before I ended up watching the show based off of your recommendation. So like, 
what are the things that you do to take your mind off of this world of board gaming? The the, the big change in my life, I mean, there, there's a little thing that's been great. I've been indoor rock climbing. That's been a nice outlet for me. But that's connected to a fairly big change in my life, which is that I, for the first time in really the entire time that I've run Stonemaier Games, which is coming up on seven years now, I have uh, I have a, a girlfriend that, that, uh, that I, I basically I've made time for a relationship because I really liked somebody and um, it's been awesome. Like I've, I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's, it, it, it hasn't been something that I've used to take a break from, from running the company. Rather it's been, a, I've been trying to navigate two different commitments and it's been really interesting and really fun. And uh, it's allowed me to also revisit a passion that I had for traveling that I kind of gave up hand in hand with running a company and giving up relationships. So Megan and I, we've traveled a little bit. We traveled to rural Virginia for a wedding this past weekend. We actually plan to go to Alaska next year. Hey, well, if you're into indoor rock climbing, then Southeast Alaska is a rock dump. Just telling you, it's right really? there. Yeah, right there. It's uh, you know beautiful <laughs> right next to the Gas and Dough Channel, man. I didn't know that. I don't know. Do, do, you, do you do that? Is that something you You know, um, I do not do a lot of indoor rock climbing. When I was a, a big, for Big Brothers Big Sisters, I would take my little there a lot, but uh, uh -huh. I haven't gone in a while. But my friend, Mike Hyman, who's a designer and uh, he, he does a lot of print and play stuff online, uh, his wife is an incredibly avid uh, rock climber and she's there all the time. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Well, I'll have, to, I'll have to try that if we, if we go there. I can't remember. She has, my girlfriend has two specific friends in a specific part of Alaska. I don't know exactly where it is, but. It's a big state. Yeah, it is a big state. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's the, the, the fun thing in my life lately. Well, that's, that's awesome to hear. Congratulations yeah. on that. And that's a big contrast from where we were maybe two interviews ago, two podcasts ago, where I yeah. think I was asking you about family life and how much time you dedicate mm -hmm. to Stonemaier so that the, the listeners and myself, I could get an adequate picture of what sorts of sacrifice it actually takes to be the the... <laughs> the Jamie Stegmeyer to immerse yourself into an industry and your company as much as you do. And I remember at the time you were like, well, I've pretty much made myself okay with the fact that I'm probably going to be single for the rest of my life. And I was like, yeah, I admire that dedication. <laughs> and also I kind of feel a little sad for Jamie right now. So th <laughs> this makes me so happy. That's awesome. Thanks. I, I'm, I think I'm in a fortunate position where I found happiness with my life before that. And it has, I think that's been all the better for our relationship because it was, I, I didn't feel like I was looking for something until I happened to find it. That is absolutely true. Like that is such a, a benefit. One thing that I know from personal experience and from uh, any amount of social work experience that I've done in my career up until this point is that uh, happiness does not come from the outside. It's something that you mm -hmm. really got to, you know, find on the inside and make sure that you have reached an okay point and uh, any amount of looking for another person or another thing or another hobby to, to solve that and give you fulfillment isn't really going to do that. It can in impact 
the 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 ways through which you can find um, internal fulfillment, but it's not going to solve it. So I think that yeah. that is a great place for you to be in. And I think this is Thanks. a great place to kind of end this interview at. So Tapestry, when are people going to find it? Where are people going to find it? How should people get a hold of this game? And is, are they going to be able to get a hold of it, Jamie? Come on, this wingspan <laughs> thing, people are still trying to get the game. Um, I, I, I don't know. It, it's it's. I never really know how many people are going to want the game. But we will have a pre-order from September 4th to 7th. I've reserved a certain number of games um, from the first print run for that pre-order. And then the rest of the games I've reserved for distributors and retailers. So people will be able to also order it from their local retailer or an online retailer, whatever their preference is. Um, and then as with any of our games, if there is more demand, we'll continue to make more copies. That sounds awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I can't wait until next year when we're talking about whatever you got on the horizon, <laughs> Jamie. As always, it's been a pleasure. Same here. If you enjoyed this video, we have all kinds of other reviews, interviews, and recommendations via writing, podcasts, and video here on our channel and website, CardboardHerald.com. Our content is audience-supported, so if you want to show your support, please visit our Patreon. Thank you so much for watching. This has been the Cardboard Herald.